Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to the Arkansas AgCast for December 16th. I'm your host, Rob Anderson. This week, we talk to an expert about agriculture estate planning. We get details on the Arkansas State Meat Inspection Program, and we hear about how a project related to Beaver Dam could impact farmers along the White River. First, we spoke with Arkansas Department of Agriculture's Patrick Fisk, Livestock and Poultry Division Director, and Dan Douglas, State Meat Inspection Manager, about the Arkansas State Meat Inspection Program. Dan and Patrick shared their insights about where the program is headed and discussed the benefits to Arkansas producers and consumers, and how they can get involved. Hello and welcome to this segment of AgCast. We are here with Patrick Fisk and Dan Douglas. You guys want to go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yes, good afternoon. Thanks, Shirley. Uh, my name is Patrick Fisk. I'm the director of uh, the Livestock and Poultry Division, a uh, division of uh, the Department of Agriculture. Uh, glad uh, to be on and excited about talking about uh, the topic. Uh, basically, our role here is uh, to monitor, uh, to control, uh, and to eradicate diseases uh, that are communicable diseases, zoonotic diseases that affect public health, as well as uh, protecting the herd uh, and flock health uh, for industry. Uh, we are now into food safety as well, uh, obviously, with a, with a program up and running. Uh, we do have a grading services at poultry plants, so the state meat inspection program is, is a fairly new program to us, and we did have a program back in the 70s and 80s, uh, but that program, for whatever reason, way before my time, uh, kind of fell to the wayside. But uh, some uh, uh, arrangements uh, or, I guess, situations uh, have happened uh, recently that has uh, encouraged us and uh, uh, the industry to, to uh, try to look at uh, revising that program. So uh, I'll turn it over to Dan and let him introduce himself as well. Okay. My name's Dan Douglas, and uh, I am the uh, manager of the Meats State Meat Inspection Program. And I'm charged with uh, developing the program and getting it approved by USDA, setting it up, and basically giving birth to the Arkansas State Meat Inspection Program uh, to where uh, what are now custom processing plants can do state inspections and our producers can sell their their um, product, their beef, hogs, sheep, chip, um, goats, wh whatever they're producing, by individual pieces uh, to retail, restaurants, wholesale, wherever they want, farmers markets, give it another link in the supply chain for the consumers to get locally produced products. Absolutely. Well, we're so excited to have you guys here today. You presented a workshop breakout session at our convention this year. We are so appreciative of that. It's always great to partner with the Department of Agriculture and serve the producers in Arkansas. So thank you all for being there as well. Um, as we talk about the state meat inspection program, I want to back up just a little bit and kind of cover the history of that. You know, it's something that we're reintroducing to Arkansas and really pouring a lot of effort into. There's the CARES Act. So can you guys give some history and foundational information for producers who may not be familiar with it? Uh, sure. It, um, you know, there's been a lot of a lot of blame go around for 2020 and 
uh, uh, all that catastrophe that's that hit the nation as well as Arkansas. And I think most of your listeners uh, would definitely agree and uh, understand uh, the impact uh, to the cattle market yes. that, that that had. Um, it, I guess I wouldn't say there's a lot of good things that happened out of 2020, but one of the <laughs> things was that it did kind of bring some uh, something to the forefront. It really uh, showed us just how vulnerable we are to outside resources. Uh, and that we need more opportunities here within our state. Mm -hmm. So it did kind of open our eyes a little bit. So with that, when the um, food, food supply chain was interrupted, uh, it really limited uh, Arkansas producers on what they could do. You know, there was, uh, of course, only three USDA um, certified plants here in Arkansas. Uh, the rest of them were custom facilities. And of course, they were completely backlogged. It was a year or two year backlog before they could ever. And it's kind of hard for a producer, you know, to to time that or when they, when they when they're going to calve what yeah. what they would have available. Uh, custom facilities were in the same situation. So, together with Farm Bureau, with Cattlemen Association, uh, with the uh, Hunger Food Alliance, and some other programs and other stakeholders, uh, got together and decided we needed to do something. So one of those first steps was to go before the legislators uh, the, and there was some CARES Act money available. We were able to secure $10.4 million to provide and to increase um, the processing capacity here in the state. And that was the purpose. It, it was a kind of four, three different, um, uh, I guess, uh, consumers, uh, as well as producers and facilities. Uh, it was a tree, a threefold uh, ability to help not just the uh, facilities themselves. So we didn't want to just target on the facility. We wanted to open this up uh, for those that were actually impacted severely in this process. So there was 31 of uh, those processors that were awarded the funding. About half of those were brand new facilities. And the other half were uh, trying to expand their facilities to, to aid in uh, producing more product for the state. And then there was a, um, some interest in, in a uh, complete new awareness of the interest and the, the I guess, um, more locally grown product. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that heightened that awareness that Locally grown product was a whole lot better than what you could buy uh, that would be either imported into the state or across state lines. Uh, so that would really interested a lot of folks as well. So we're out in the middle. Um, all the, all that money had been granted. Uh, those facilities are, we've been kind of auditing and checking up on those. I think we now have eight facilities that have some type of USDA approval whether it's uh, their preliminary custom exempt or their preliminary USDA grant of inspection. They haven't got their full inspection yet, but they are inspecting USDA product at this point. Uh, there's a probationary period in which they have to go through uh, USDA uh, inspection in order to get their full grant. But that has opened that up. And then we, we've been visiting with uh, custom facilities as well for the state program. Uh, the other, of uh, course, is uh, the uh, passage of Act 418, uh, which is what we're talking about today, 
Uh, and that's to open the, the state up for other opportunities for these custom facilities to have an opportunity to um, get on board and have a different product. Uh, you know, right now, those custom facilities can only sell uh, or, I guess, partner uh, with their customers. They can't resell that product. Mm -hmm. uh, this would give them the opportunity to have another market uh, to open that up for those uh, so that they could even have a storefront or uh, the producer himself could settle and market that product. So those are the two big things that we've tried to do uh, as well as awareness uh, to try to increase the productivity of the state and, and to give a better opportunity for state uh, and not have such a reliance on the Midwest, so to speak, where most of our uh, cattle go right now for, for pro uh, pro processing. So anyway, it's, it's a good pilot. We're, we're so excited about what's going on. Uh, Dan, I'll let him talk a little bit. I've probably talked too much. <laughs> Uh, but Dan has been a, uh, a key player in this, uh, tremendous um, work that he has done so far. So um, uh, anyway, uh, he's, he's done a great job, and we're proud, proud to have him. Okay, well, thanks, Patrick. And, and you covered a lot of territory there. Let me go back a little bit on the history of, of this. And it goes back to 1906 when Congress passed the Meat Inspection Act. Before then, there was no inspection of meat. You got meat that was misbranded. They might sell horse meat as <laughs> beef. Uh, you, you know, they would sell adulterated products. So in 1906, Congress passed the Meat Inspection Act, which stated no adulterated or misbranded meat could be sold for human consumption. Okay. Well, in that act, and it's contained now in CFR 21 and under section 661 of that, there is a section that states that the federal government can enter into a cooperative agreement with states for the states to have their own state meat inspection program. Okay. Now, one of the caveats of that, or one of the requirements, is that the state program has to be at least equal to the federal program, okay? Because the main thing is here, we do not want um, unsafe meat products, adulterated meat products, or misbranded meat getting out to the consumers. We want a good, wholesome, safe product out there. So... We have to, the, the onus is up on us as the state now to write a program that is at least equal to the federal program. Mm -hmm. And there's nine components of that. There's a, the statutory authority and rules, which the legislature, as Patrick said, passed Act 418 last session. That's the statutory part. We're now in the rules adoption process. And we have, have just adopted most of USDA rules by reference. And that's out in the public comment period. And then in January, we'll go to the uh, Legislative Council to get their blessing and approval on it. And once that's passed, we will submit for formal, um, <clears throat> formal uh, um, program acceptance to USDA. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now there's, there's other components on that. There's inspection, there's sampling for microbial uh, and uh, um, adulteration. 
Uh, they're staffing and training. We've got to figure out how we're going to staff this thing and how we're going to train our inspectors. Yeah. Uh, there's humane handling aspects of it, uh, which are required by law. And that comes under the inspection, but it's a separate part. There's the compliance where we have to go out and ensure that uh, product in commerce is being handled correctly. It's being kept at proper temperature. For example, with some of the storms and tornadoes that went through and there were power outages, uh, our compliance people would have to go to the grocery stores and distributors and make sure that the product they had in stock had not got above temperature and become adulterated, okay? There's laboratory quality assurance. And what we're going to do with the taxpayers of Arkansas in mind, we're going to try to be as efficient as we can. Starting out, we won't have a lot of lab samples, uh, testing, uh, from these samples on product that we have to do. So we're just going to contract with an out-of-state lab that's already doing those to process those samples for us. And they're already approved by USDA, so it will simplify the process a lot until it becomes cost-beneficial for us to set up our own uh, laboratory here. There's some other things we, we have to do, but we're in the process we're trying to get our training scheduled down. We're going to start doing some assessments of some of the plants and their facilities because the, the plants have to meet a certain uh, facility requirements to make sure that we can ensure that the meat products process there will be safe and wholesome to the Arkansas consumers. Absolutely. And, and Dan, I just have to tell you, I keep thinking about this and getting tickled at the thought of anybody now even realizing they'd possibly eaten horse meat. You know, you're talking about that historical law. And I, that just had me tickled because, you know, we do put a lot of pride in what we what we put at the forefront as producers. You know, we're proud of the products we grow and we raise. And it's important to us to have that transparency and to allow the consumers to trust us. So I love that you went back to even that historical reference because it's something that we keep in practice today. Um, you know, having been on, on some of those trips with you, one of those trips with you to see some of those locations and, and what they're building and doing, there is a wide variety of different type of meat processing facilities coming to the state of Arkansas. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, well we have all sorts of, uh, of facilities here. Of course, we've got our large commercial facilities, mainly in poultry. Uh, that that uh, we're, I think we're number two in processing in the United States in, in poultry. And therefore, we have a lot of experience in the processing industry. But then also uh, under the, the beef and hogs and e even sheep and goats, uh, there are niche markets there for those uh, sheep and goats yes. uh, with a lot of our immigrants and our diverse population that we have today in Arkansas. And uh, anyway, we're getting... We've got our older facilities that have been there for years that have been, hey, there's facilities that my dad took, took uh, hogs to to get butchered and, and cattle to. You know, they've been doing it for years. But then we've got some of the newer facilities too that, that are coming on. And with the CARES Act money that, that Patrick mentioned, there's several brand new facilities that have opened up or are in the process of, of opening up 
that are going to be state-of-the-art facilities. They're going to be very clean. They're going to be easy to clean and keep sanitary. Um, some of them are, are going to have further processing to where they can make beef sticks and they can make jerky and, and different things there. So we're opening up to a, a new era in the processing of red meat in Arkansas. And it's going to give opportunities and some challenges and some challenges for our producers out there to have another market for their product, for their livestock, and uh, a, a chance to possibly make a better profit and um, open up another supply chain, another link in the supply chain to the consumers of Arkansas. Yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of variety that we see. You know, we toured a mobile processing facility, and then we toured a brand new facility. And there's just all these different things that are coming about to, to, to consumers. They're going to benefit consumers, but I'd love to talk about the ways they're going to benefit producers as well. We hit a little bit on the supply chain interruption and in that, you know, our producers had nowhere to take their livestock. You know, they had cattle, they had hogs that were ready to be harvested, and then all of a sudden there's nowhere for them to go. And, and this is really, I think, and I think you all would agree, this is really going to help alleviate that issue. Um, what other kinds of benefits are we going to see for producers as we move forward? Well, the, the, there's the benefit of establishing relationships with, with the end consumer out there, whether it be with restaurants, mm -hmm. whether it be with the individual, uh, um, uh, I, I don't know if housewife is the proper uh, uh, verbiage today, but, but the, with the individual household, Yes. Uh, purchaser uh, uh, of the meat supply for the, the kitchen table. Um, and so we have those relationships that we can build and expand on, uh, food trucks, farmers markets. There's all sorts of venues out there that, that are open uh, to the producers. And not only are, are, are there good opportunities there, but there's a lot of challenges there too. Because currently, hey, Walmart does a lot of marketing. You know, Kroger does a lot of marketing. Uh, different stores, and uh, we hear Angus Beef, certified Angus Beef, does a lot of marketing. Mm -hmm. o Omaha Steaks, uh, whatever the um, processor and, and retail outlet, they have their own marketing. And now a lot of that marketing is going to fall upon. The producer, if they choose to become a player in the supply chain here. And you mentioned uh, a, a little bit about Arkansas and, and their producers and, and how good of a job they do. I, I don't really think people understand, especially uh, outside of the state and even in our rural areas, it, how good of a quality product that uh, Arkansas producers put out. Yes. And for the most part, most Arkansans, they go to, you know, um, a retail outlet, uh, they go buy their groceries, they pick up some meat there, and they really don't know what a good quality fresh steak is like. Mm -hmm. And I think this will open up some opportunities and open up some eyes and say, hey, you know, I don't mind spending uh, just a few couple, two or three dollars more uh, to get a really good fresh quality product that was raised right in our backyard. 
So uh, we're excited about that part of it. And there is a growing movement uh, the uh, farm to table uh, products. So uh, this will just open that door for that producer. And like Dan said, just uh, add another link to that uh, producer. Because, you know, currently right now for a lot of the smaller operations, they've got two options. They've got to go to a livestock market to sell mm -hmm. their, their uh, cattle or they go to a local area. But right now, uh, those local producers uh, or processors, they're just backlog. So there's really right now, there's only, only one option for a lot of people, and that's to take them to a livestock market uh, where, you know, the, you know where the prices go up and down. So uh, this this will open up the door a little bit more for, for people to have, uh, you know, another product, maybe put a little bit more money in their pocket uh, and, and to be proud of something that they're they're putting out. Yes. And, and I kind of want to go back to what Dan said with those relationships. It's twofold there. You know, you talked about how people even in and outside of the state don't realize how quality those products are. You know, when you buy an Arkansas product that's not only grown, raised, harvest, you know, it's going to be harvested here now too. So, you know, you have farm fresh, farm raised, farm harvested products now in Arkansas and agriculture is our largest economy over 21 billion every year back into Arkansas economy so like you said those two or three dollars more it's going to go right back into the state it's going to go right back into what matters to Arkansans not just on the agriculture side but everyone that's touched by agriculture which is literally every Arkansan and those relationships that Dan talked about the door that's going to open there that I see for producers is just beyond anything that I think they've been able to experience before. You know, there is that big push for farm to table. And as we look at that and what kind of relationships they're going to be building, is there anything that you think that they should be focusing on if they plan to be a part of this shift? Okay. Well, one thing, one thing that, that going back to something I mentioned, mentioned earlier, and that is the marketing. Mm -hmm. If if these producers want to be a part of this supply chain link, then they have to, to consider all the obstacles that they will face. Uh, number one, they've got to have quality. They do produce good quality product. Are they going to do grass fed? Are they going to do grain fed? Because there's a difference there and there's a, a different market for each one of those. Yes. Also, you've got to think if you are going to start supplying say a restaurant or a retail customer that that wants meat year round how is that going to affect our seasonal calving system that that most of our cattle producers have you'll you'll have to have cattle coming off for harvest year round and not just in in twice once or twice mm -hmm. a year so that's something that's got to be considered. Another thing is you can sell your steaks all day long, but I've already had producers that call that say, hey, we need to look at how we can get processed and market beef sticks or, or jerky yeah. for some of the undesirable cuts because, hey, each, each steer has a certain amount of steak and then it's got other stuff too, and you can put a lot in hamburger. But some of the producers even say selling the hamburger, they get kind of backed up on it at times. But what do you do with the roast? What do you do with the 
the other parts. Briskets, maybe you can sell them to, to a barbecue joint, you, you know, or, or someplace. But you've got to figure out your pricing. Number one, how do you price your mm-hmm. steak? How do you price your, your roast? You know, and that there's a, a lot of studying and a lot of research that needs to go into this. I'm promoting the program. I think it would be wonderful for the producers of, of the state, but it's not just, oh, I, I think I'll try selling this uh, uh, stare at the farmer's market. You've got to know your market. You've got to do your research just like anything else But before you jump in. There's great opportunities, but do your homework on it. Absolutely. And and I'll put a little plug in. In the next week, we are going to have um, a segment on direct to consumer to marketing. So for anyone that's listening or that's interested in marketing their products like Dan and Patrick are talking about, we will have a segment coming on that in the near future that we hope you'll find just as beneficial as what we're doing today. So with with what's coming down the pipe for this, you know, you talked about some of the things that are about to roll out in 2022. What do producers need to look for next and expect in the future as we get this program really rolling? Well, here's a couple of things. Number one, as I mentioned earlier, we're getting ready to do the formal submission to USDA probably in January. And then we'll sign the MOU and we'll start signing plants up. What I have found in talking to some of the plants say, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in state inspection, but I don't know how many of my producers want to participate. Mm-hmm. So if the producers are interested, they need to talk to their processors and say, hey, uh, hey, Joe. I'm, I'm interested in this. I want you to go state made inspection. I'll, I expect to try to market X number of head per year through your plant because the, the, the processors need to know before they sign up for the program, maybe make improvements on their facilities, go through all the paperwork because there's HACCP plans, SSOP plans, a lot of stuff they have to, hoops they have to jump through. To, to become a state inspected program, they've got to know that there are people, there are producers that want to participate. Mm-hmm. Okay. So producers, get out there, talk to your processors. Because with that, without your input to your processors, we don't know where we'll be. But we're going to get this program off the ground. We hope. Now, this is a big hope because <laughs> we're dealing with the federal government here uh, approving stuff. But my hopes are that w- would be that within six months, we could be ready to start signing some plants up mm-hmm. uh, for state inspection. Now, now, one thing I didn't mention earlier, and I always forget something, there's a difference between USDA inspection and state inspection. Yes. And that, that one difference is we've got to do all the same things on the state inspection that USDA does. But that one difference is state inspected meat cannot be sold for resale across state lines. Mm -hmm. Okay, So that means it's interstate commerce sold only within the state of Arkansas. 
Now, if you're in the tourist area and you have uh, uh, somebody come in from uh, Missouri that wants to buy some steak or hamburger and they want to take it back home and uh, cook it and eat it themselves, that's fine. But they can't take it back and sell it across state lines or you can't take the product from Arkansas and sell it in Missouri or Oklahoma or Texas or over the internet to uh, Kalamazoo. Okay, so uh, that that's one of the differences there. But we're we're going to get this program up and going, and um, uh, then we've got to work on the marketing aspect. How can the Department of Agriculture here help with uh, information on websites? How can Farm Bureau help mm-hmm. and cattlemen on their websites to help marketing? So say, hey, I live in in Pocahontas, Arkansas. Where can I? Uh, get local beef and be able to go to one of our sites and punch it up location. And here's the nearest producer. We've got to work on that. And after talking with Farm Bureau and and talking with our associates in the marketing department here, um, Arkansas Department of Agriculture, I think we'll have some of those things up and going in the future too. Yeah, we're we're making um, as fast track of this as we can. I do want to add too, uh, a key component of this, of course, is the consumer. We've got to know what the consumer wants. So if that producer wants to get into this, he needs to know what his customer likes. Uh, you know, the, of course, hamburger meat is probably the most sold uh, beef product. But as uh, Dan had mentioned, you know, there's other options. There's beef uh, sticks, there's jerky, and those those are becoming a desirable item. I mean, they, those are... Um, vacuum packed and they'll last forever you don't yes. have to have a huge freezer space for that and also the facility uh the processing plant needs to know what the producer wants so um there's just going to be a little education that we we could use some help on mm-hmm. um make sure that everybody kind of knows what all's involved uh what they know what they're getting into uh as dan had mentioned there is two significant differences uh with the u.s uh graded versus or, or, or inspected versus state inspected, they both have to meet the same qualifications, same requirements. It's just that state uh, is only within the state. But there's some other benefits there too. You're working with the ag department. You're working with local folks. Uh, you, we're we're going to accommodate those facilities and work when they want us to be there, mm-hmm. and and not when. USDA decides they want to be there. And I'm not trying to throw our uh, one of our partners under the bus here, but it is important for a lot of these processing plants to have a good local relationship. Yes. And I think that's a strong part of this program and something that we are going to bring to the table uh, that will enhance uh, the interest of this. Uh, we expect to have a kind of a slow start to begin with mm-hmm. because there is a lot to get involved with this. Um, uh, there's a lot of planning. There's a lot of approvals. Uh, there's a lot of uh, things that the process and plan is going to have to do to get up to code, so to speak, uh, in, uh, in order to. So we just got to know who all's out there and what their interests are, get their uh, complete, um, uh, uh, you know, I guess, to, to get their knowledge on what they want or, or get their input and what they want. Uh, but to also kind of let them know, yeah, this is, it's going to cost you this. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this worth it for you? Um, and just try to encourage as many uh, as possible. So we just want to get as many on board. We feel like we've got, um, you know, a handful so far 
that have showed some good interest. So uh, Dan has been going out and working with them so far. Uh, they're two or three uh, very excited about the potential of this. Uh, so we're trying to go ahead and start getting this process started before we even get approved by USDA. So we can kind of do two things at once uh, and not wait until USDA gets approved. And then we go out and and, and seek out those um, facilities. So uh, it's going well, but it, it is it is a process. It is going to take a little time. Uh, so I wouldn't expect within the next few months to have uh, inspected product to be rolling out uh, to the market. So, but anyway, we have um, done some few things here to kind of uh, fast track that. That one is is our rule uh, that Dan had mentioned. It's open for public comment. Uh, we, we did that by reference, and uh, of course, that's we have to follow those guidelines. And USDA has has already kind of give us a verbal approval on that and said that we like that and uh, we're ready to roll whenever y'all get um, get your program outlined, uh, which we have. Uh, I think it's a living document. So we will work as we go along, but uh, USDA has been very willing to help us uh, get this progress progress started and going. Those partnerships are so important. Dan had mentioned, you know, Cattlemen's and and so and us, our Farm Bureau and the Department of Ag on the USCA and the Arkansas level. Um, one thing that I do want to mention that Dan had also said was having a place for people to look for local products. I know that the Arkansas Department of Agriculture has a program, Arkansas Grown, and their website is a great place for people to look for local products. Um, not just meats, but any kind of products, you know, whether it's locally raised produce, honey, um, Arkansas made goods. It's a great place to go to. And Cattlemen's is now rolling out a place that is similar for beef producers. So any producers that would like to be in that system, whether it's beef producers um, with Arkansas Cattlemen's or any kind of Arkansas made products with the Department of Agriculture, highly recommend those two resources for consumers and producers. Um, is there anything else that you guys would like to add before we wrap up today? No, I'd just like to, um, uh, to, to, tell, to tell everyone that we've got a great team here. Um, everyone here has got the background, the knowledge, the experience uh, in these fields. Uh, Secretary Ward, uh, Deputy Secretary Edwards have been a tremendous help in getting this done. Uh, we've had uh, administrative staff here that has really helped us. Uh, I'd like to mention Cherry Ellis. Uh, she is um, the program manager over our grading services at our uh, poultry plant. Uh, the reason why she was so key element to this is her father was actually an inspector back in the day when we had a state program originally. So she remembers all of that and she got us uh, kind of a kickstart on this. So she's in a instrumental in this. So uh, we've got a great team. We're excited about what we're trying to do here and um, uh, the help that Farm Bureau has um, the education, the information that they have put out has been tremendously helpful as well. So we just appreciate everybody that's been involved in this. And I'd just add that, hey, a good prime rib makes a wonderful Christmas <laughs> meal there. You know, a locally, yes. Arkansas locally sourced prime rib there, a good roast or something, wonderful <laughs> Christmas meal. Uh, uh, so anyway, uh, just eat beef, uh, eat, eat pork, eat, eat eat local yes. eat local yes 
Well, thank you guys so much for joining us today, Patrick and Dan. I really appreciate you all taking the time. For anyone who's looking for more resources, I highly recommend visiting the Arkansas Department of Agriculture's website. Um, you can also reach out to some of their staff members, the wonderful people that are on board with this program that Patrick talked about. And thanks for listening today. Next, Trav Baxter, a tax and estate planning attorney with Mitchell Williams Law, joins us to recap his workshop at the recent Arkansas Farm Bureau Annual Convention. An expert on agriculture estate planning, Trav offers his top nine list of things farmers and ranchers should do to prepare their estates now. Okay, I am so happy to welcome uh, Trav Baxter to the Arkansas AgCast today. Uh, Trav, if you do not have the opportunity to join us at um, Arkansas Farm Bureau State Convention uh, last week, then um, you probably do not know that uh, Trav Baxter presented a session on succession planning for the farm. Uh, Trav, you are an attorney, a tax and estate planning attorney uh, at Mitchell Williams Law Firm. You specialize in agriculture law, right? That's correct. Uh, what else What else might, might our audience find interesting about you? So I've, I've uh, been at Mitchell Williams for almost 15 years now, but uh Primary practice is wills, estates, and trust. I do a lot of agricultural law just because I have a family background um, mm-hmm. uh, in farming, southeast Arkansas and Deshaies County. I have a fourth-generation family farm down there and, you know, just got pulled into agricultural law, and, and I've enjoyed it ever since. Yeah, so as somebody who has uh, managed to turn their public relations career into a focus in agriculture, I can tell you that once you kind of dip your toe in, it just pulls you in, and you want to spend all your time there. That's right. That's exactly right. It's one of my favorite practices in, in law, and I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, thanks for joining us today. Like I said, we're, we're kind of working our way through a series. Uh, we want to do something different this year. Uh, at State Convention, we have um, workshop a number of workshops, uh, professional development-type workshops throughout the event. And uh, this year, we decided to bring all of those to the Arkansas AgCast afterwards. So if you weren't able to attend or maybe you're, you're, you're interested in maybe attending next year, you can, you can get a feel for t- some of the type of uh, professional development opportunities that we have at the, at the convention. And I just so happened to host the session that um, Trav uh, presented. Uh, so he and I get to hang out again today on the, um, on the AgCast. So Trav, I, you have put together a list of sort of nine things you need to know or nine things you need to do uh, in order to have a, a good succession plan put together for your farm, right? That's correct. Yeah, and this uh, involves everything from last will and testament, living will, uh, beneficiary uh, business, um, reviewing. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to go over all the list now. But what I thought what, what we could do today is have you sort of walk one by one down the list and give a little bit of explanation to it. And, uh, you know, I may ask questions here or there. Does that sound good? That sounds great. I have All right. Well, let's kick it off with the first one. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll dive in and I'll give a little bit of an overview real quick. So, yeah. um, succession planning, you know, lack of succession planning is one of the main reasons that family farms don't pass to the next generation. It's extremely mm. important. And one of the main pieces of the puzzle in a succession plan is the estate plan. And the estate plan is generally making sure that your assets are passing down to the next generation, mm-hmm. you know, to the extent that you can, free of as much tax, debt, so on, so things happen the way you want them to. Because 
one thing I always tell people is, and I think I mentioned this in the presentation, is if you don't have a, an estate plan mm-hmm. and you don't line it out, uh, then the state of Arkansas is going to tell you what your estate plan is. You know what? You took that one off my that question off my list because I remember <laughs> you saying that. I was kind of taken aback. Yeah, I don't want to dive in already, but like, can you tell us what that is? Yeah, and it's generally not what you think it would be. So, yeah. you know, most people think that if they've been married, they have kids, and if they pass away, everything that they have is going to go to their spouse. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. Sure, if assets are titled jointly, you know, so on, things will automatically pass to your spouse. But if you have an asset that's in your individual name and you pass away, the likelihood under Arkansas law is that it's going to go one-third, you know, that's a generality to your spouse, mm-hmm. and two-thirds to your kids. Oh, wow. And so a lot of times that is not known. Um, and also the other thing, too, is, you know, a lot of people say, well, I want this asset to go to this child and this asset to go to this child, you know, this piece of property over here, and they'll agree on it and they'll be just fine. You know, yeah. they know what I want. Yeah. Well, that, you know, sure, that could turn out fine, but most of the time it really doesn't. And so you got to be really careful on that to make sure that you actually line out on paper, you know, what you want to happen. So yeah. It's important. Yeah. No, that's a good one. Well, thank you for that, uh, for that setup. I think it, you make the case strongly right off the bat on why you need to put one of these succession plans together. Absolutely. Well, let's, uh, the first one is uh, last will and testament. That's right. So generally with an estate plan, and I'm going to combine two of these, there's two tracks sure. that you can go down. You can have a last will and testament, and I'm just going to use a married couple as an example. Okay. And you can say, listen, everything goes to my spouse. Upon the death of both of us, everything goes to our kids. And you can line that out in your last will and testament, um, and that's great. Mm-hmm. One of the issues that you have with just a last will and testament, though, is you got to go through the probate process upon the second death, okay? Mm-hmm. And so you got to file your, your will with the, uh, with the court. Um, it's got to go through probate. It can be time-consuming, expensive, you know, and sometimes people want to avoid that, especially mm-hmm. in a day where privacy is very important to people. And some of the things that you file at the courthouse, people can go see those things, okay? Mm-hmm. So you got to watch out there. And so that's the first item. A last will and testament can provide you with passing your assets down to the people you want. It works. Mm-hmm. But there's an element, do you want to avoid probate and do you want to make things private? And if you do, that gets to the second item a revocable trust, okay? And so if you have a revocable trust in place of a last will and testament, it does the same thing. It allows you to pass your assets down to your family members the way that you want to, but if you do it the right way, you can avoid the probate process and a revocable trust is private. So there are benefits, you know, to doing that, but Mm -hmm. if you just want a last will and testament, it certainly does work. Yeah, okay. Well, that sounds good. And you, you mentioned funding, Going along with that revocable will and trust, you want to talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So if you set up a revocable trust, sometimes known as a living trust, there are a few different names for it. Um, you create it. You say, this is how I want my assets to pass You know, upon my death. Well, you have to make sure that your assets line up with your trust. And so that means you know, your bank accounts, your investment accounts, um, your house, all of those things need to line up with the trust. And that's called the funding process. And what I mean by that is, you know, you might want to say, listen, I have an investment account that's titled in my name. I'm going to create a trust and I'm going to retitle the investment account in the name of my trust. Mm -hmm. Um, Or I have a checking account and I really don't want to retitle it, but I want to make sure it goes to my trust. And so I'm going to put a payable on death provision on the checking account. So if something happens to me, it ends up in the trust. Mm -hmm. So, so long as you go through the funding process, and you go down each one of your assets and make sure that you line those up with the trust, 
you've kind of done the work on the front end mm -hmm. to make sure that if you pass away, everything is going to move smoothly as opposed to not doing that and just either not having an estate plan at all or even having just a will and having to have your heirs go through the process at that time. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Good, good info to have. Uh, what's the next thing on your list? Yeah. So a lot of people think that an estate plan really is just for making sure I'm passing the my assets down to the people I want them to go to. Right. And it is. I mean, that's a primary purpose. But however, there is also the purpose of an estate plan during your lifetime. And so the next item on the list is a general durable power of attorney. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so a general durable power of attorney is if I'm incapacitated, and I need someone to be able to pay bills or file tax returns or do those daily, you know, financial, you know, actions, mm -hmm. you know, that are going to need to take place if I can't do them. Mm -hmm. The general durable power attorney allows you to appoint someone to do those things for you. Mm -hmm. If you don't have it in place, then you could end up in a position that if you become incapacitated, a guardian has to be appointed over your estate mm -hmm. and you have to go to court to do that which is a time-consuming and expensive process that nobody likes to go through. Right, right. And, may, yeah, so we dealt with this recently with, within my family, and thank, thankfully we had the power of attorney uh, set up. But, you know, I mean, you're talking really simple tasks, cashing a check, yeah. sometimes even, you know, f making sure the insurance copay is taken care of. I mean, really medial tasks even that this allows you to be able to do, right? Absolutely, and here's the issue. I mean – if you become incapacitated and you don't have this and you need to go do that quickly, the problem is you can't, okay? Mm -hmm. And so you've got to go to court, and the court has to appoint a guardian. And there are provisions that you can take to make it move quickly, but quickly is not immediate. And, so and quickly to, in the court of law is not right, quickly yeah. in our mind, right? Every, everybody <laughs> knows that, yeah. So, I mean, so having this simple document in place, I mean, it is extremely simple to put this in place, will save you, I mean, save you and your family a lot of headache. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's a good one. Yeah. And I'm assuming before we move on, you can make changes to that at any point. You can. So that's a good that's a good question. So your general durable power of attorney, you know, there's also two kinds, okay? So a lot of people say, well, you know, I really don't want to give authority, you know, over my actions to somebody else right now. And some people say, I want to, I don't really mind whoever I'm appointing. I want them to be able to do this immediately for me. Mm -hmm. And so there are ways that you can, you know, build into the general durable power of attorney that if you're deemed incapacitating, we have a doctor's letter, you know, uh -huh. that you're incapacitated, then it goes into effect. Then you can always change it until you become incapacitated. At that point in time, it's in stone. Oh, nice. So, so this person will have the power if I become incapacitated, but not a minute before. That's right. Okay, interesting. That's that, a little security blanket that folks might enjoy. It is, yeah. And I normally tell people when they sign these, I say, listen, you know, I know that this is who you want right now, but, you know, if tomorrow, you know, you go to sleep and you wake up in a cold sweat and say, oh, I don't want that person to act on my behalf, you can change it. Just yeah. call me and we can get it updated for you. Call Trav. That's He'll right. take care of it. I'll take care of it. All right, awesome. Okay, so if we're moving in order here, and you'll tell me if we're not, but yep. uh, beneficiary designations, That's I think, right. yeah. Yeah, so this lines up with, um, you know, we talked about the last will and testament, the revocable trust. Um, beneficiary designations are really important um, overall because, so for example, your life insurance, mm -hmm. it's going to have a beneficiary designation. Your retirement account is going to have a beneficiary designation. You must go through and make sure that those beneficiary designations line up with your plan. Because time and time again, we see that people don't update those. 
And those assets, life insurance in particular, when you get it a long, long time ago, right? And you don't change your beneficiary. Those those beneficiaries are not who you want anymore. And we have seen people that pass away, and those proceeds go to where we know it really wasn't intended, but it is what it is. Yeah. And so you got to be careful on that. Yeah, I'm thinking about this. Uh, obviously, it has you know, it has its place on the farm, but I'm also thinking about that as. Um, maybe a spouse or somebody like that who works off the farm. I mean, we, we, we see a lot of farmers, even in our farm family of the year, our district winners, uh, where they've got, you know, day jobs as it were. Um, you know, look, if you sat down and did, did that paperwork, noting your beneficiaries 20 years ago, when you started that job, uh, chances are you may not even remember who that was. So it's a good, good, good idea to check that in. E- even outside of the farm, check yeah. in on that, right? And things change because sometimes you get a life insurance policy for a particular reason. Say, for example, you know, you have a son that works on the farm and, you know, a daughter that lives in, you know, Virginia. And she, mm-hmm. and she doesn't work on want to work on the farm. And, you know, you've got a life insurance policy in place, so you equalize her out if you're giving the farm to your son, you know, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and say, say, for example, son doesn't want to work there. Something happens at the farm or daughter actually comes back. You know, you mm-hmm. got to constantly watch your fact pattern and your plan to make sure that it still does what you want it to do. Because right. otherwise, I mean, you're ending up in a position like you were in without a plan. It's not going to do what you want, you know, want it to do. All right. You used a word that perked my ears up. Fact pattern. Can you define that for me? Yeah. So, you know, fact pattern in regard to your specific set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean... Every fact pattern is different, and so that's really important. So generally how we approach estate planning and succession planning is I sit down and I say, listen, you know, we need to just start talking, mm-hmm. and I need to really figure out exactly, you know, the dynamics in your family. I need to figure out the ownership of, you know, your business, your assets, all those things, mm-hmm. and we come up with your specific set of facts and circumstances, and then from there we go and figure out what your goals are, you know, your objectives, and how to achieve those. And the estate plan is one of the ways that we help to achieve your goals. Right. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Now, one of the things that I'll, I really liked about what you did in the in the workshop uh, is you had sort of this family anecdote or scenario set out. So this child, which I thought was really familiar to the stories that I hear. So this child um, moved away and doesn't really want to work on the farm. This child is sort of interested in moving back home, but doesn't want to do that right now. This child, you know, and I'm saying child, but descendant, I guess. That's funny because I say child a lot. I'm talking about 50 and 60 year olds. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. This child really wants to stay here and work on the farm and never left the farm. So you're, you're telling me like, you know, you work inside a lot of these different family dynamics and family set. I'm sure even, um, uh, to the to a degree of different marriages or different Absolutely. different types of family arrangements and things like that, right? That's right. That's okay. exactly right. And you have to look out for everybody. I mean, you have your children that you want to look out for, but you know, they have relationships as well. Mm-hmm. And so, and sometimes you don't want to take care of those relationships. Sometimes you do, and so you have to make sure that you line all that out and think about it. And listen, I mean, I understand that you know talking about it and looking at it can be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you have an approach and you follow the approach, it's really not. I mean, yeah, it, yeah. It, you can really boil it down to get to where you want to get. And then when you do it, you know, you feel good about it. 
Yeah. Well, one of the things that I hear you talk a lot about is sort of this monitoring going back and 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 my and if you like you said, if you've got the fact pattern in place, that sort of helps you do some more real time monitoring without having to come sit down with you again and or or you know do some take some extra steps. It kind of gets easier to self maintenance. It does, it does, and you can pick it up and you can look at it. And you know, it's funny. I mean, I tell people to look at it. You know, at least every couple of years to make sure things haven't changed. Uh-huh. I have some people that come in and had looked at theirs in ten years, and they pull it out and we start going through it, and they say, "I left." that to who <laughs> and, you know so you got to watch out for that i mean it and i see that very often and they they're like yeah that's not the case anymore so we need to change that have you been sitting down with my dad is that <laughs> <laughs> no i mean but that you bring up a good point though uh so when people leave your office and and talking to you they've got a document i mean they're gonna have a document that they can check back on going and, to, yes. and that they're they're sort of controlling and looking over on their own that's right. right. I had someone come in today, and, and they we did a review of theirs, and they had already gone through it and said, we need to update some things here. We worked on it together. We're going to take it, update it, you know, and they're good to go. Nice, nice. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's keep, uh, let's keep moving down the list here. So the next one ha- has to do with personal property. Yeah. So a lot of times when we do your revocable trust or your will, you know, you, for example, you know, our, our example we use in the presentation, um, I want to equalize my kids. I want each of them to get a third of my estate so on. Um, but there may be certain items that you want to go to certain people, say a ring or guns or, you know, whatever that might be. Yeah. And so you can, in Arkansas, you can have a separate list, uh, a gift by a separate list for tangible personal property that you can update from time to time. As oh, long nice. as you sign it and date it and refer it back to the document, we provide that to you. Um, that, that makes sure that, you know, you don't have to go and amend your trust or your will every time, you know, you want to leave the couch to somebody else. You know, you can you can do that, and it makes it very easy to do so. That's one thing I would recommend is if you do it the right way, it's legally binding. If you don't, then it's not. And <laughs> I'll have to say, personal property, I mean, it can be a huge mess if you put a lot of siblings and their spouses in a room together and they have to start selecting things. Oh, I bet we've all been through it or know <laughs> someone who has. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, or it can be a good experience. I mean, yeah. it's what you uh, what you make of it. You never think anything's going to go wrong, but I mean, you just don't know. It, it, it's better. People always take it a lot more, you know, a, a lot better if you've lined it out for them. Yeah. You made, you made this point several times at State Convention, and, and the point was, you really don't know how people are going to react to a situation until you get there. That's right. And if you're the person who's concerned and uh, writing the estate plan or, you know, uh, probably aren't going to know what, <laughs> what's happening. So, it, you know, in order to best control that, it's the you planning this, piece, yeah. right? And, and, and that's a really good point because, you know, if you say, listen, my children get along, I'm not worried about it. Well, one of the ways to ensure that they're going to continue to get along is if you line it out. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah. yeah. And so, because if you don't line it out, then you risk, you know, a break in the relationship and you don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely not. It, it's kind of, uh, you're still able to parent from, yeah. from beyond that's a right, little bit, yeah. right? <laughs> you're still able to help them, help them learn and, and succeed. Well, that's cool. Right. Well, all right. Well, we've got a few, few left, uh, Living will, this one's interesting. Yeah, so living will is very important. So if you are permanently unconscious, you have an irreversible condition, and I'll just generalize this, you're going to be put on life support, Mm -hmm. okay? So you can say, you know, one of three things. Um, 
I don't want to be on life support in that situation if I'm mm-hmm. deemed, you know, to be in that condition. Um, I do want to be on life support, or I want to appoint someone to make that decision for me, you know, providing them with some guidelines. And so this is a very important one because a lot of people have to deal with a parent generally, mm-hmm. you know, or a loved one that's on, you know, has a serious issue that is going to be put on life support. You know, so a living will is extremely important to have in place. In connection with that, the durable power of attorney for health care, which is sometimes called a proxy or directive. Right. Also extremely important to have in place because if you don't appoint someone to act on your behalf for health care decisions, um, then just like we said with the appointing a guardian for your financial purposes, a guardian has to be appointed for you for over your person, which is for your health care. Okay. Mm. And so similar deal. If you don't have this, you potentially risk having to go to court mm-hmm. and having someone appointed by the court to do those things for you. And so these two documents right here, living will and durable power of attorney for health care, are very important. They have a little bit of a different um, you know, context, obviously, because it's healthcare and it's not financial related like we've been talking about, but they go with the plan and they're absolutely necessary. Yeah. And here we are again at a point where I think is really relevant to anybody within a listening uh, distance of this podcast. Um, But there are some, uh, you know, there are some nuances that come along with with everything we've talked about so far as it applies to farms and ranches. And, you know, we know a lot of farmers that have other businesses, whether they be trucking entities and things like that, all all these things. really have some nuances that that you want somebody who's experienced with agriculture to, to help yeah, you Yeah, absolutely. There, there are a lot of nuances, especially when you get to, I mean, a lot of these things run constant among a lot of people, but when you get to the the business-related side of things yeah. or whatever else it may be, even the fact patterns in terms of, you know, when you're dealing with family farms, I mean, all those things are, are specific. And so it's good to have a little bit of background and know, you know, Seen experiences and things happen over the years. I mean, it generally right. helps out. Yeah, right. Okay, so we covered we covered a living will and durable power of attorney for healthcare. And if you were listening and uh, paying attention to the second one, with this, which is that general uh, power of attorney, durable power of attorney, this is this is separate from that. That's right. This, this is, is the healthcare side of that. Yeah, that's right. Okay, got a couple left. Uh, one of those is guardian designations for minor children. That's right. Now I'm going to assume that godparents just telling someone they're a godparent or something like that probably doesn't come into play here yeah, i don't no, know yeah. you can it, correct me if I'm work. Wrong. so <laughs> ge- yeah so i will explain what it means so generally um younger people the way that i can get them in to get their estate plan done is when they have kids yeah, yeah, yeah i mean yeah. the guardian guardian designations for minor children is, is a huge deal um because if something happens to you know both parents who's going to take care of your kids right who are they going to go live with and, you know, a lot of times, you know, each parent will have their own parents, i.e. grandparents, and, you know, and all the grandparents and everybody are involved, you know, with the kids' lives and, and so on. And so you can designate who you would like to serve as guardian over your minor children if something happens to you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a preference, and it has to be approved by the court in the best interest, but generally if you put it down in your documents, it will be in your last will and testament if you put it down unless there's some reason to deviate from that, the court is not going to appoint someone else. Sure. Similar deal as personal property, even though, I mean, it obviously different, but similar in terms of if you line it out, 
then most times people don't get upset with it because mm-hmm. otherwise someone will say, well, I want to be the guardian or I want to be the guardian. It's a huge burden, but I mean, you know, it's generally grandkids or whoever else. It could be, um, could be family friends that are good, you know, you're taking care of kids and you want your kids to go live with them. A lot of times people say, well, in the guardian of my minor children going to be who I appoint as my backup trustee, my successor trustee. Mm-hmm. And I say it could be, but, you know, some people are good at finances, some people are good at taking care of kids, and some people are good at both. Yeah, And sure. so you got to be really careful in terms of who you appoint, and this is a really big decision. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great point. I mean, um, and thinking through this, this goes back to, uh, you know, I hate to make this comparison, but back to something we were talking about earlier with personal property, like you're helping people get along and and and, and you know, do the right thing. Not not implying that anybody wouldn't, but you're helping people make the right decisions. Um, even even after you're unable to do that, you know, physically, I guess. That's right. You ha- you have a greater chance of success if you line all this out. Yeah, that's a great point. I- I'll tell you another prompt. You talked about when people have children. Um, for my wife and I, uh, it was an international trip you know just being abroad i think brings some greater sense of responsibility to some of that stuff too absolutely and i mean generally if you go abroad or you go out of town or whatever that might be you know a lot of times you want to make sure that whoever's keeping your kids you know you've got it lined out you know with their pediatrician or you know you've got something on file you know that they're taking care of that'll make you feel better too that's even a temporary document absolutely yeah yeah yeah. we've done that okay Cool. All right. Last one. Periodic review of the estate plan. We hit on this a little bit, but I bet you can give us some pretty tangible advice. We did. Yes. Yeah. So estate plan, you know, it's not a one and done kind of thing. Um, you know, you wish it would be, but, but life doesn't work that way. And so, you know, things change, tax laws change, you know, family relationships change. Um, you know, new people are added to families, you know, some people pass away. You have to periodically review your plan. And some people say, well, uh, you know, how often should I review it? You know, how many years? And, you know, there is no set in stone rule on that. Normally what I mm-hmm. tell people is, listen, you know, if some kind of life cycle event happens, you know, someone gets married, someone passes away, you know, things like that, you probably want to pick it up and look at it. Um, but at least every, you know, two to three years, I would generally pick it up and look at it and make sure that it's still, it, I mean, it won't take you very long. Sure. Just make sure that it still reads the way you want. And most of the time when people pick it up, I mean, I say most of the time, 50%, let's say I kind of want to tweak something, or maybe I don't. So it's good to right. look at it make sure it, you put all the effort in on the front end to get it there. Just keep it keep it in good stead. Yeah, okay. Well, that sort of concludes your your list. And these are, these are all parts and pieces that should be within the, an estate plan, they right? Are, yeah, I mean, yeah, they are parts and pieces that will be within an estate plan. And they also line up, as I said, the estate plan lines up as a tool for the overall succession plan of a family farming business. Right. You know, whether it's operational, whether it's landowning, whether it's both, you know, the estate plan has to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. And there are other elements of a, a, a succession plan as well. We talked about some of these in the presentation, such mm-hmm. as a buy-sell agreement between owners of a business. Those things also come into play as tools, but the estate plan is an integral part, and I mean, it's it's a very important thing to get in place. You know, you make a good point, Trav. So I would consider these sort of a estate plan 101, yeah. right? You know, somebody like yourself who's been involved in this with, you know, within the agriculture uh, industry specifically can help people 
you know, there's certainly many points that could be added to this list as, you know, as you get in and understand and learn about the business and you see things like a buy sell agreement, things like that, that may need to be in place. But that's, for me, that's what struck me is, you know, that's why it's so important to have, um, you know, an expert, somebody who, who, who does this really, frankly, for a living, you know, uh, to be able to help out, um, along the way. And, uh, and I think that's, I think that's really important. Something that we didn't really cover, but, and, you know, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm getting to that midlife age where I've, I've had conversations and been a caretaker and things like this a lot. Um, I'm just curious, do you have any tips on, I would qualify this as a, as a tough conversation, right? Do you have any tips on starting that? And I, I hear so many people, I say so many people, I hear people say, to me, well, mom just doesn't really want to talk about the sad things like death or dad really doesn't want to imagine not being on the farm. Do you have, have you seen something that sort of helps us get there? You know? Yeah. And, it, and I mean, it's a great question. It, it depends on the personality, of course. Uh-huh. I mean, and some people like, you know, tough love and some people, you know, it doesn't. It's, <laughs> so by example of, yeah. I've, I've had it work where I've told people, listen, I mean, if you don't provide your plan, I mean, one's going to be handed to you and it ain't going to be what you want. Sometimes mm-hmm. that works. Yeah. You know, uh, other times, you know, it's not that way. And it is a very sensitive conversation and you got to be careful of it. And I think normally, you know, the way that I see it work when children are talking to parents about making sure they have their stuff in place is, listen, you know, I know how hard you work for this. You know, I know how much it means to you. We just want to make sure it's taken care of. And normally it works much better if all the kids are on the same page and do it, you know, together, um, as opposed to, you know, one of them going in and trying to push the conversation or somehow they're all involved. So the parents know, listen, I mean, this is a a common theme that they have to want to make sure this is set up and they're going to help. And I think that that goes a long way right there. Yeah. Maybe taking a list like this or this podcast and sending it to that loved one and saying, hey, it. Don't know where, where you are on this process, but here's right. some good advice from Trav and Arkansas Farm Bureau. Yeah, and, you know, sometimes you could tell them, listen, I mean, and, and, and to be honest, you know, if you don't have this in place, you know, say, for example, you become incapacitated, you know, how are we going to – it's going to be hard to take care of you. I mean, we're going to have mm-hmm. to go to court, and we're going to have to do do all these things, and we really need to get this in place. Yeah, yeah. Generally, Arkansans don't like outsiders coming in and telling them what to do or how to do it. So maybe that's the motivation point, too. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> we've got pride, you know, and so yeah. you don't want that to happen. And um, Exactly. You can cut that off if you if you take the time to sit down and do your plan. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, I'm going to throw a couple at you that, that um, may, may be surprises or we didn't talk about. But uh, one thing that I always like to do when I when I have the, you know, good fortune to have, have an expert on the ad cast – is to do some myth busting. So I'll ask you a question, I, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you you cannot count the the how the state will break down your estate for you if you don't have a plan. Because I part think of that the was deal. A, yeah no no. no. <laughs> is there a myth that comes to the top of your head that sort of people have an assumption or uh, you know something like that that's maybe just not true or half true or anything like that? No yeah. pressure. Um, you know. One of the biggest things that I see is um, I don't want to give away my rights. Okay. Um, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm not ready to give away my rights. I've still got my capacity. I've still got everything. I mean, I don't want to do all this. Mm, um, and, you know, we're not asking 
you know, when we do the plan, we're not asking you to give away your rights. You know, mm-hmm. we're asking you to line out what happens if you become incapacitated or pass away. You can, if you want to, go ahead and appoint someone to be able to do things specifically for you now, but that's not necessarily, you know, the way the plan normally works. And so I normally have a myth to bust in terms of, you know, if we're doing a plan for someone or trying to convince someone that they need the plan in place, which Uh they do, making sure that they understand that, you know, they are still their own person and things aren't being taken from them. Yeah, that's huge. I guess I I never thought about that as having this – um, I don't know, this feeling of, of losing control yeah. because you've put down on paper what happens when you don't have control, yeah. right? It probably feels like that. That's a that's a really, really good one. But you, you're, as you said throughout uh, our conversation, like there, you know, there are certain triggers, if you will, or things that you can put in place to make sure that it doesn't happen until it absolutely has to. Yeah. And normally what that's I'll cool. tell, you know, I, I had one a couple of weeks ago um, and, and, you know, mom, you know, she's in her 80s. She mm-hmm. needed to get a power of attorney in place. She was perfectly, you know, with it at mm-hmm. full capacity. Um, and she said, well, you know, I'm, I, I really don't feel like giving away my rights. And, you know, and I said, well, first of all, you know, you're not. You're just appointing, you know, your daughter to serve, you know, and help you if you need. Mm-hmm. But, hey, listen, if you do this and tomorrow if you don't like it anymore, you call me and we'll change it. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. So, yeah, at least you got something in place, but you can change it if you want to. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. All right, last thing I'm going to ask you. Is there... What is the craziest kind of wildest clause or, uh, I don't know, personal property to be handed down, something like that that you've ever seen? Did some, has someone ever designated the, the family dog or anything like that? As a, oh, yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Hey, I mean, pet provisions are a big thing. Okay, talk to me about absolutely. that. I want to hear yeah. this hey, now. I mean, we've got him in my trust. I mean, I... <laughs> Yeah. No pet, way, yeah, really. Pet, yeah, pets are important. I mean, it, you can you can in your trust or estate planning documents, you know, designate specifically who you want your pets to go to, how much money should be left to take care of them. I mean, all of that. Yeah. And wow. I, I, would, I mean, and and I would recommend it. I mean, if they mean something to you, because that makes sure you feel comfortable about it. So I yeah. see that all the time. Okay. All right. I thought I was being funny. Yeah. Turns <laughs> out, uh, I'm, maybe I'm behind on my own estate planning. Yeah. I mean, I always got to <laughs> think about your pets. I mean, come on now. Well, that's cool, man. That is awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us. I know you have dedicated a lot of time to informing the members and, and others uh, within that um, agriculture community, especially uh, with Farm Bureau here recently. And I appreciate all the time you've invested in that. Absolutely. Happy to help. Finally, Jay Townsend, Chief Public Affairs Officer with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, discusses a call for public comment on the Beaver Dam interim risk reduction measures. In addition to sharing how and why farmers and ranchers should comment, Jay breaks down how the project could impact farmers along the White River and why it's important to be involved. All right, I'm glad to have my friend Jay Townsend here uh, from the Corps of Engineers, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about a project that uh, his team is working on uh, that involves uh, the Beaver Dam. You guys are seeking out some information from the public. As a matter of fact, I think you've got a meeting there in Searcy uh, this evening uh, from 5 to 8 p.m. Of course, we hope there's some, um, you know, agriculture uh, stakeholders who are planning to attend uh, that meeting tonight and, and make their voice heard. But uh, you know, and maybe meetings even moving on into the future about the project. But Jay, I just wanted to uh, grab a minute of your time. First of all, appreciate you coming on the Arkansas AgCast. 
and just ask you to talk to us a little bit about this project. What's what's the background of the project and sort of some of the some of the basics here? Sure. Thank you guys for having us on today and giving us the chance to explain the Beaver interim risk reduction measures. Um, so you're right. We do have public meetings tonight. Um, hopefully the rain will hold off or people will uh, brave through it just to get out and kind of hear what we've got to talk about. Um, during a routine periodic inspection in 2016, um, engineers saw an increased risk at Beaver Dam. It's just been so wet since about 2008 and even a few years before that. Mm-hmm. that we've had a lot of water behind the dam. Um, which has increased some um, of the risks downstream. And so these risks were identified during that inspection, and we're going to change the way we operate in in an interim basis, right? So this is just for now um, until we come up with the final plan. So it's the water control plan that we're actually looking to, to, to make a final update on. But in the interim, we need to put some measures in place to reduce the risks um, to the downstream populations below mm-hmm. Beaver Dam. Yeah, and just I want to get this out of the way really quickly because it was part of some of the information that you guys shared. But, uh, you know, there is no, not a risk of imminent catastrophic anything happening right now. Is that right? Yeah, you're correct. Well, you know, that's probably where I should have started off, but I want to <laughs> thank you for on here first. But, uh, no, you're right. There's no risk of imminent catastrophic failure. Um However, the identified dam safety issues combined with the last decades above average participation really has regularly increased the amount of time that lake stays in its flood pool. Mm-hmm. And that's what's increasing the risk to the population living downstream. Yeah, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, and as we know, we're seeing we're seeing weather patterns kind of do different things than, than maybe uh, previous previously we've seen. So I'm sure this is kind of a result of that, like you said, increase. If we're, be, oh, we're being honest right now, I mean, we're getting a little bit of rain at the moment, but uh-huh. it's been very dry from the summer until now. Mm-hmm. And all of our reservoirs are into their respective conservation pools. So as where we've seen times like this, where we're high in the wintertime, we're just not. We're into those conservation pools. Um, and we're using the water to still generate hydropower, but uh, we don't have a high perched pool at the moment. So it is one of those things, right? So we we have the last decade's worth of high water. The 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 moment we go to implement this plan, it stops raining. Right, right. And you know that's a good point. Uh, across the Arkansas River, um, frequent fairly frequently, and you can just see by driving across it that it looks low. Same for the Mississippi. Um, I was up um, near yeah, and. Uh, yeah, at, uh, at Bull Shoals uh, a couple of weeks ago, that lake is just incredibly low right now. So that, that that's a really uh, well made point. Um, you know, I think I think it's important for people to remember that these are flood risk reduction reservoirs, and so they're operating as intended. Even if we're going to put some interim measures in place, they're there to capture rainfall runoff mm-hmm. um, and store it in the flood pool and slowly reduce re- release it, reducing the risks downstream. But then when it's not raining, they've also got our other ancillary benefits like recreation and hydropower. So they're releasing water from Bull Shoals, Table Rock, um, Greer's Ferry's really into its conservation pool right now, and mm-hmm. Beaver um, releasing water to generate hydropower that keeps um, electricity costs low in our rural areas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great point. Great reminder. They're not just for uh, getting out in the boat on the weekend. They serve a really important purpose to the state. Um, well, I, so 
so this meeting is in Searcy. I'm just really curious uh, why that location. White White County is is obviously has a significance here. Yeah, so it's you know uh, the White River reservoirs were really all put in place to protect the downstream agricultural industries in eastern Arkansas, plus several other benefits included in that. But we're gonna we're gonna host public meetings all along the White River Basin. So you've got Searcy tonight. Um, Rogers in January, Branson in January, Jacksonport, Arkansas in January, and then Mountain Home February 1st. And I, I just listed off some dates, but I want people to know there is a public website out there, and it is www.beaverlakedam-irrm.com. Um, and hopefully you guys can share that link and maybe like mm-hmm. the comments or the podcast. But you can go there. You can get a, a quick refresher on what the interim risk reduction measures are. And then you can also see when those public meeting dates are. Some of them don't have um, venues yet or locations, but then if you can't make it to the public meeting tonight, you can certainly leave your um, name, email, and your comments concerning the plan. Because while these are in the interim risk reduction measure phase, we're developing permanent solutions to these problems. And so, we're going to need everybody's comments. If you're a farmer and you can't get in your fields at 14 feet or 12 feet or nine feet, um, give us that location. Give us, you know, the threshold that you've got there. Cause uh, what we're trying to do is, um, balance the way the system is managed. Right. Yeah. I know that's really, uh, I love that you made that point. You know, I mean, these, these are, you know, this is a system put in place to protect agriculture to an extent. And, and you guys don't know, what you don't know and until these you know these folks show up or or go online or you know issue their comment however um you know you guys don't really know each individual situation and and uh public public comment periods are really really important and and so we do need their comments and i want people also to know too we put interim risk reduction measures in place in 2016 as soon as the risks were identified Mm -hmm. these are more um just because it's just continued to rain we've continued to have a high perched pool behind beaver dam beaver's the first in the chain right so beaver table rock bull shoals then you've got norfolk and greers below that main stem there but beaver's the first to fill and last to empty um so we'll hold beaver the whole time bull shoals is emptying out and if you know how big bull shoals is bull shoals is so big it can hold everything in table rock and beaver at the same time wow beaver's been sitting high for a long long time we're just going to try to increase interimly right just increase the amount of water that we can let out so as soon as we realized the risk we actually implemented um double flood release ma- flood risk management minimum releases after after a flood for example so that we went from being able to release around 950,000 i'm sorry 950 cubic feet per second from one generator to 1900 cubic feet per second so that just allows us to bring the elevation of beaver down a little bit quicker but beaver can't come down unless table rock and bull shoals are down so right. that's where we that's where we are with beaver um, and on this website, too, you can look at these interim risk reduction measures like a deeper drawdown after a surcharge, revised guide curves at Newport and Georgetown. Um, and some of those guide curves are looking at um, the older water management operations. When we were in a really wet pattern for a long time, um, I'm sorry, we were in a really dry pattern for a long time before uh, 2005, 2008. And so they made some changes. They went in and said, hey, we we don't necessarily need a 14-foot regulating stage at Newport. So they went to 
They went to 12. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we need to go back and look at some of that stuff. So we need to regulate maybe to 24 feet at Newport um, when we're in flood stage. And so there's just some interim risk reduction measures in there. And you can see it's graphically represented. Um, and you can just kind of read through some of those ideas. And then again, at the very bottom of every single one of those pages, there's a spot for their comments. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, that's good information to have. Um, I love the backstory and, and sort of understanding the scale, um, you know, as we move sort of down the state or across the state, I guess, technically, um, that's, that's really fascinating. So thank you. Uh, thank you for taking the time, Jay, to explain some of this and, and why it's important, especially to the agriculture community. Um, and as we, as we look at this entire system, but especially the you know, the Beaver Dam uh, project that you guys are working on. So can I, guys, can I leave you guys with one thought and a little bit more of the history and a little bit more of the uh, methodology that we're thinking of when we're going through this stuff. Mm-hmm. These dams are 50 and 60 years old. And when they were built, the downstream populations weren't near as big. Just look at how much it's grown up there in Rogers, Springdale, Fayetteville, and then in those areas. And then Branson, you know, we're talking about um, before these dams were built, these were just desolate areas, some of the poorest in the region. You insert these dams in there and provide the water resources to to stimulate growth and then accommodate for growth. Um, but now they're 50 years old. And so um, there's just more risk downstream. There's more risk because they're older. And so we've just got to make a few operational changes to ensure that we can mitigate the risk enough to operate them for another 50 to 60 years because they are such a vital resource to this region. Yeah, that's right. Great point. Uh, with age comes maintenance for most things. And, uh, yeah, it's just kind of part of, part of the process and keeping a, a good, healthy functioning system in place. Yeah. So, thank you so much. Yeah, man, I, for sure. And we can be more than welcome to have you back on to talk about this project as it evolves. Um, again, if you don't mind, give us that uh, URL one more time so folks can see the dates of these meetings, the locations as you, as you add them and uh and also the online comment area sure so um if you go to www.beaverlakedam-irrm.com you'll get on that page and you can see what the interim risk reduction measures are the things that we're changing um, as far as operations go and at the bottom of every page you land on while you're there you're going to have the chance to make a comment as well as see those public workshop dates um, and locations Perfect. Well, thank you again, Jay, for taking the time and uh, best of luck tonight. Safe travels. And we look forward to talking to you about it all soon. All right. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Yeah. That's all for this week and next week. We'll be back the last week of the month for one more 2021 episode. Until then, Merry Christmas to you and yours from all of us at Arkansas AgCast.